Well, greetings and welcome to the dividing line, uh, road trip dividing line number. I've lost track. I don't know. And there's going to be so many over the next couple of months. I can't keep track, but it's good. I'm enjoying the opportunity of getting this, uh, this traveling in again, just don't know, um, how much longer in the future we're going to be able to do it, but as long as we can, we'll, 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 we'll keep doing it. Um, up in Denver, Colorado, as most people know, I've been announcing that starting uh, tomorrow evening, um, we will be having a, uh, what I'm really looking forward to, um, uh, at Redemption Hills Church, <clears throat> a conference on secularism uh, with myself and Jason Lyle. I am the mental midget of the group. And uh, anytime you you speak with Jason Lyle, you you recognize that you're a, a mental midget. And um, so looking forward to that. If you're in the Denver area, uh, come on by. Looking forward to that opportunity. Uh, about killed myself today. <laughs> I uh, was um, challenged by a friend uh, who... Uh, really only does this just so he, he can bless me and my wife and my family and stuff. But he does challenge me to do some pretty crazy things. And um, today that involved uh, climbing as hard as I could uh, up to the top of Mount Evans. Now, you may not know anything about Mount Evans if you don't live in this area, uh, but it is the highest well, it's called the highest paved road in North America. I think it's 10 feet higher than Pikes Peak, but you're still the highest. Um, there are sections that are rightfully called paved. <laughs> and then there's the section around Summit Lake. And uh, let's just say I'm not sure I have all my fillings uh, after coming back down because Going up's one thing. You're going slow enough as it is. Coming down, every one of those massive chasms just ages you. <laughs> I'm actually only 42. No. Um, but um, the the finish line's at 14,130 feet above sea level. And um, there are really fascinating things that happen to the human body. Uh, in fact, my friend told me that um, he's a private pilot that um, if he were to fly <clears throat> as high as the finish line, he's technically supposed to have oxygen available uh, in the plane. And uh, you try pedaling as hard as you can uphill. Uh, really starts kicking in around 12.5, I'd say. But especially you get up into the higher 13s and, you know, the same heart rate, I was getting 200 watts down around 10,000 feet. And up at uh, 14,000 feet, you're getting maybe 140 for the same effort. It's um, it's fascinating how the body works. And uh, it's beautiful up there. I mean, you can literally see the curvature of the earth. You're so high. I'm sorry for all of you flat earthers out there. Um, beautiful place. And I notice I'm wearing my I'm wearing a Mount Evans shirt. I just got it. And I'm sort of sad. Sorry to start off this way, but I'm sort of sad. Uh, as I walked up, I love this little, uh, the Echo Lake Lodge. It's just the best gift store in the world. And the little elderly lady that ran it for years and years, she passed away last year. 
Uh, she hadn't passed away when I was here last time, but she had now had since. And um, just nice folks. And it's a really nice place. There's a nice little restaurant in it. And unfortunately, government's taking it over. And I'm sure they'll ruin it completely. And they're closing at the end of September. So it's probably be the last shirt that I get to buy uh, at that cute little place uh, that I've been to, been going to since about 2011 now, uh, since I've been coming up here. So uh, <clears throat> anyways, managed to get through that without crashing. Um, almost ran into some um, mountain goats that somebody, and they've, they've got signs everywhere telling you, don't feed the mountain goats. Well, somebody was, and so traffic was snarled up. I'm coming down, uh, and traffic was snarled up, and the goats are running around, and it's very strange. But anyway, a few storms rolled in after I got off the mountain, which was very nice, because storms can roll into a place like that at an incredible speed. They really can. But um, ever get a chance to head up to the top of Evans, I highly recommend it. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It uh, really is. You know, you got, you got Alaska, then you got Colorado. Colorado's second to Alaska, uh, but there's more food available than Colorado currently anyways. Who knows what the future is going to be on that? Uh, no, I have not actually um, had the opportunity. Well, I'll take that back. There's a, a video out that Jordan Peterson did with somebody who I, I did not recognize. Uh, talking about the possibility or the reality of a coming famine, worldwide famine. And I haven't watched it yet. Uh, Jeff wants me to watch it. Okay. Maybe after the events this week. You know, I mentioned to Jeff and the other guys, it's like, I've been contemplating a little bit. You know, we have to know what's going on. We can't just stick our heads in the sand. I, I get that. But at the same time, maybe some of you older folks like me will understand this more than some of the younger folks. That the younger generations have grown up with constant information overload, just every day they don't even know what it's like to have silence uh i've noticed that with pretty much millennials on down silence that's scary that makes me nervous and um but i think some of the older folks will understand when i say that i've been contemplating a little bit what jesus said when he said sufficient for the day is the evil thereof and you know there's some some insight in the Sermon on the Mount and parables that Jesus told that I sometimes wonder if I'm not taking advantage of because it's so easy, especially if you start off your day. I mean, this one's a, this one's a, a no brainer. You don't start off your day. Um, being exposed to the insanity of the world. Many of us do, but we shouldn't. It's obvious. It ends up so uh, deeply impacting your mindset for that entire day. That, uh, I, just, I just know that there are many times that... Um, <laughs> Hi, Marty. Um, and yes, I did it. Um, I, I did the challenge. I, I, I barely did the challenge, by the way. 
the challenge was to get up in a certain time. I, I had like three and a half minutes. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna make it. Those last switchbacks are just brutal, but we did it. Yay. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I haven't listened to that video yet because basically what I was saying was like, I just don't know how much I can, you know, I can handle. Um, if you're, if you're, and if your mind is constantly, I mean, there, you know, Jesus talks about worry as a sin. And I think I create a lot of my own worry just by how much I expose myself to things that are really beyond my control. That's when you, you really have to learn to trust. And that's, that's not the easiest uh, thing to do. So uh, we haven't been on the air since, well, actually in the last program, I mentioned, popped up on my screen, Mar-a-Lago, FBI, and I, in the days since that has happened, I think it was Monday, yeah, I, I just, I, I can't help but repeat what I've said in the past, we have had, in the United States anyways, a great blessing for many, many years that we never gave thanks to God for, and that is, you could hear people repeating the line, um, we are a nation of law, not a nation of men. I don't think most people understood what that meant or why it was a blessing or anything like that. I, I just don't. Being a, being a nation of law would requires a lawgiver. And our nation has rejected uh, what was the the guy? Looks like a little gnome. Uh, the Republic, uh, the Democratic guy. Uh, someone else in the House had said something about God's law, and his response was, "God has nothing to do with this chamber or this uh, this body." And uh, you know, he doesn't even realize how completely out of touch with the history of the United States and of legislation, presidents, so on and so forth, that statement was, but it does represent where we are now. We have rejected the God of scripture. We have rejected the God who gave us the foundation of law. And we replaced God with man. And once you put a bunch of men together, you have something called the state. And so... When you see institutions that were once the objects of respect and honor and trust quickly becoming the equivalents of the the Stasi secret police, when the Department of Justice, when the very name itself makes you laugh, you don't know what justice is and you're not doing justice, you're doing injustice. People around the world have lived under that curse for a long, long time. And we in America have looked down at them and gone, sorry. But we didn't seem to realize why. 
and what the cost would be of abandoning the principles that gave us those freedoms. And so uh, when you see lawlessness, you know that this is an evidence of God's judgment, of not, not of God's blessing. And so that's what's taking place around us. I'll be honest with you. The current regime, and I'm, I am somewhat encouraged by how many more people I am noticing are not talking about an administration. They're talking about a regime because that's what this is. That From day one, they had zero concern about constitution, nation of laws, uh, any of that kind of stuff. They're just going to do what they're going to do. They're going to use their power in an illegal fashion, but they don't care because they get to define what's legal anyways. But as I listen to, um, well, who do you listen to? You listen to Biden and just go, what did he just say? You listen to Pelosi and you go, what did she just say? You listen to the White House press representative and you have no clue what she's talking about because she has no clue what she's talking about. She is utterly incompetent. It, this, th- that is the clearest example of someone who is put in that position solely because she checks off all the equity boxes, not because she has a clue about what she's doing. It's astonishing. Um, but when you do, when some of the other people who actually seemingly know what they're doing and why they're doing it, to destroy the nation. Um, when they come on, you listen to them and they don't have any fear of the elections. And this reminds me of the run up to 2020 and you see these massive crowds. And like I said, in Phoenix, I saw parades of cars. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And then you'd look at Biden and, you know, the senile old man meeting with 20 people wearing masks. And yet, allegedly, he gets 80 million votes. These people are not concerned about elections any longer. That's that's how it strikes me. They are not concerned about elections any longer. And if that's true, then um, the United States, as a constitutional republic, is... It is completely done for, and very quickly. And I don't know what's going to take its place, but I can guarantee you one thing. Whatever will take its place will have less food, far more control, um, and liberty, freedom, all those things will be had, run out the door very, very quickly. That's uh, unless something happens. And you know what? God's still on his throne. God can do whatever he pleases to do. And he may well bring about a tremendous change. Um, or he may, this, this may be the time when secular humanism and its utter foolishness and everything associated with it from 
from Darwinism all the way through transgenderism and gay mirage and, and everything else, um, it all comes apart, explodes, takes a whole lot of people with it, and finally we have that clear, this stuff is insanity, we'll never do it again. Never do it again. Now, the only way that a never will never do it again could ever happen is if God, by his spirit, grants grace and enlightenment. I, I get that. Mankind, is, mankind in sin is stupid enough to repeat the same species-destroying insanity over and over and over again. I, I get that. I get that. But there's this stuff in Scripture about Christ putting all of his enemies under his feet and this insane evil system, this regime and everything it stands for, it's got to be put under the feet of Christ. Um, no two ways about it. No two ways about it. So um, amazing stuff going on in the world today. And um, we, one of our chief prayers should be, Lord, as I hear what you by your spirit are doing in the world today. And we normally use that only of positive things. But we should recognize that God by his spirit is bringing judgment. He is building his kingdom in the way he chooses to build that kingdom, which in hindsight is going to be glorifying to him. But right now it can look like a complete mess. Uh, but Lord, as I see what you're doing in the world by your spirit, teach me to respond as you would have me to respond so as to glorify you and teach me in that process to trust and obey. To trust you. Because a lot of us are very fearful. We're very fearful because we love, we love our lives. We love the things that we possess. And once again, same old sermon I keep preaching to myself. The only power that tyrannical FBI agents have over you is the things they can touch, your possessions, your freedom, your life. They can't touch your soul. They can't touch your soul. And so if we love God and not the things of this world, they have no power over us. Oh, sure, they all that other stuff, but that's all passing away anyways. I mean, the amount of time left for any one of us is just a, a brief blink of the eye. That should be encouraging. That <laughs> should be encouraging. <coughs> I spent two hours breathing really hard. Thankfully, the air was nice and clean. But um, when you're when you're racing starts at ten thousand six hundred feet above sea level, uh, my lungs got to work out um, today, big time. So if I cough once in a while, please forgive me. A few days ago, I saw a link to a webcast 
I was even going to pull up some pictures. Uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. I had maybe a little more now. Wonderful opportunity of going down to New Zealand. The only time I've been to New Zealand, I would never go there again unless they get rid of their tyrannical government. Um, but um, only time I got to, got to go down, I got, went to Wellington and spoke at a conference with Jim Ranahan, Joe Thorne, and myself. And there's some fun pictures. Um, you know, those are three different kinds of people. I had never met Joe Thorne before, uh, but we got along great. And there's pictures of he and I clowning around, and and uh, it was a fun, fun time. It, it was it was edifying and useful to folks. And um, I left encouraged. And even though, you know, the the three of us are rather different from one another, we we worked well together. There was no discussion. Uh, I don't believe the term either Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas was ever mentioned uh, at that particular point in time, and uh, it was it was it was a good time. And, and I was on Joe's program, and in the years since then, um, I noticed starting in 2020, when all the stuff started coming loose, that. It seemed like Joe was going a certain direction and there were people saying that and sort of going after him about it. And I sort of looked at some of the statements, but they were just, you know, like a screenshot here or a title of a program over there. And I didn't, um, I didn't download any of the programs to listen carefully or do anything like that. And so I didn't jump in on after Joe Thorne or whatever, you know, he, he, he's responsible to the Lord for his stuff and, and God bless you and just go on from there. So starting a couple of months ago, um, I started seeing his name coming up more and more. And what he was doing is he was having various people who are on the other side of the particular discussions that are going on right now amongst Reformed Baptists on the program. And so I did listen when he had Rich Marcellus on and, you know, there wasn't anything overly uh, there, but there was, there was the discussion of the issue of hermeneutics, which is very, very, very important. And let me just say in passing, I have not yet heard a single person on the other side, a single person who is a meaningful representative who's over say 30 maybe published one or two things, maybe has some teaching experience, something, and is therefore has some weight uh, as, as possibly being a representative. I have not heard anyone on that side flesh out in a meaningful fashion a criticism of reformed exegesis that has been done over the past 50 years. It's always this, well, you're stuck with Schleiermacher and Bultmann. I don't know a single Calvinist. I've never known a single Calvinist who confessed that, oh, I think the best interpretation of the world is uh, what you find in Schleiermacher and Boltmann. Not a one. I never have. 
And when I look at the commentaries that, that I would recommend to people, aside from the ones that were written by people like Calvin, um, but written over the past hundred years, none of them use, utilize the methodology of theological liberalism. None of them think that Schleiermacher and Boltmann are the greatest things in sliced bread. A few of them might like Bart. I don't, I went to Fuller. I detest Bart. And when I say that, it's because I just got force fed Bart constantly in my first master's degree. Just like, ugh, never mind. Um, but the whole, when you, when you hear them talk about hermeneutics, hold their feet to the fire. Ask for examples. Ask for examples. This is, this is, that's what you can do during cross-examination and debates. And many highfalutin theoretical claims sound great until they have to get specific. So, Long ago, back in the 90s, when I was debating um, Doug Wilson on the textual stuff. Sounds great until you get specific. Okay, how does your system deal with Luke 2.22? Well, you know, we need to be a little more general. No, no, we need to be very specific. And if you're going to say that it's all an issue of hermeneutics and we are rediscovering uh, pre-modern hermeneutics. Okay, let's go to the text and see how that works. And they won't do it. When I listen to them go to text, they're saying the same stuff we've been saying all along. There's no difference. And when I go to pre-modern interpreters like Thomas Aquinas, we find all sorts of issues. And in fact, uh, I mentioned, I'm never going to get to this. No, I'm going to. Um, last program or the program before last, just in passing, I made the statement that I'd be interested in knowing how Thomas Aquinas dealt with John 13, 19. Uh, and Jesus's citation of Isaiah 43, 10 from the Greek Septuagint of himself so after the program, I actually remembered, wow, um, to do that, to look at it. And Aquinas didn't see the connection. He missed the connection. He does not quote from Isaiah 43.10. He does quote from Isaiah 41 on a, another issue, but he missed the key element of what's so important in Jesus' words in John 13.19. Now, he's probably not the, he ain't the first one to do that. And one of the reasons might be he's not dealing with the original languages. He's not dealing with the Greek New Testament. He's not dealing with the Hebrew. And he's not dealing with the Greek Septuagint. And in fact, Septuagintal studies would not be, in its fullest sense, a pre-modern thing. That's part of modern exegesis, which means it has that means it doesn't have anything to do with Schleiermacher, Boltmann, liberalism, or anything else. Anyone who presents this simplistic, childish 
it's pre it's pre modern exegesis or it's modern exegesis, which is Schleiermacher and Boltmann and and theological liberalism. There's nothing else. That's just absurd. It's childish. It's childish. If you have Douglas Moo's commentary on your shelf, that book right there demonstrates that that's a childish dichotomy. It, it, if you have John Murray, if you have any of these uh, excellent uh, believing commentaries, it just demonstrates it's just, it makes no sense, but it just gets repeated over and over and over and over again. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, so what happened is there was a podcast and Steve Meister from Sacramento was on with Joe Thorne. Now, amazingly, I tweeted one thing. I tweeted to Joe, have you listened to anything that I've said? Because the straw men in this thing were amazing. And all of a sudden, well, you know, Matthew 18 says you should be contacting him personally. What are you talking about? They put out a public statement, a public program that used my name and misrepresented me right, left, and center. Isn't it their responsibility to be contacting me first? What is this? It's out there in the public realm. I'm going to respond to it. That's not what Matthew 18 is about. That's within a local church, we're crying out loud. What is wrong with people? I don't get it. I don't get it at all. But I was taken aback because I love Joe. I, I thought the last time we were together, things were just hunky-dory, but I just couldn't believe the stuff that was being said. And so I wanted, I, I asked an honest question. Have you listened to anything that I've said? I've, I've done hours. We have talked about church history and we've talked about Sola Scriptura and we've talked about tradition. And we've, we, we've gone in depth. And I listen to the people criticizing me and I go, do they, have they, do they know that there is something called the dividing line? And, and maybe they don't. Possible. Possible. But highly doubtful. Because if they didn't know, why would they be subtweeting about whatever I said on the dividing line within a few hours afterwards? So they know that it's there. Maybe they're just relying on a few people to tell them what they think they heard. I don't know. I just can't tell. But the straw man misrepresentation... Let me tell you, if there ever is a debate, guys, we already have so many examples of misrepresentation from you folks that, um, yeah, those cross-ex periods are going to be rather interesting. So I was taken aback, and so I asked Joe, have you read anything? As far as I know, he's never responded. Other people did. So I wanted to listen to a couple of the statements here. And... If you've been following this and you see the importance of it, you see this has to do with how we do hermeneutics. You see how the with relationship, scripture, and tradition, scripture and confessions, scripture and creeds. Um, you, you see apologetically. You, if you want to do apologetics, you can't ignore any of this. Because if you're debating someone, especially outside the Christian faith, that has any understanding at all, they're going to require you to address these issues as they should, as is appropriate. Um, 
So this is important stuff. Let's uh, let's dive into it here. Hopefully, the sound will work well for us. Uh, let's uh, let's get started. Well, what's going on and how we can begin to think about it and uh, and maybe grow together. You know, it, it seems like there's a whole lot of Christians out there that uh, that almost don't believe in this idea that we are one church, like in, in, in uh, at the universal church level. And because of that, it seems like seems like there's a whole lot more hostility out there than there should be. Okay, so what I keep hearing is this kind. Now, eventually, Joe's going to name me. So what I keep hearing is this kind of stuff um, that, why are you doing that to me? I don't know. Hello, someone there? Oh, okay, never mind. That's how Rich contacts me, so sometimes you got to check. You get this, these vague, wild statements. There, there are some people out there who don't seem to think we're part of the, the church Catholic. What does that mean? Who? Could we have a quote, maybe? A quote would be nice. It's always good to quote. So who is, who is saying this and who is getting to define the church Catholic? What is that? It sounds bad. Sounds bad, but we don't know what it is. It's just this vague type of thing. And it just makes me wonder, are there, do I have so many of my my brothers who are willing to listen to gossip and not go to the source? People I've ministered with? I won't do that to them, but they do that to me. Why? What's going on here? I don't know. But church Catholic, you mean we don't have a history? I'm, I'm telling people that there is no history to Baptists. No, never said a word like it. Not that, you know, remember, it's never mentioned, but I sort of teach church history regularly, professionally, um, and um, have taught that for the very people who are now my critics in the past. And they didn't have any problem with what I said then. Interesting. We continue on. So, you know, sometimes there's this charge out there that uh, Reformed Baptists are going to slowly evolve or devolve into Roman Catholics because, you know, they read church fathers or they read Aquinas. Are, 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 is it the same level of concern that you will become a dispensationalist by, uh, you know, fellowshipping with people from Master's Seminary? Now, Joe likes to make jokes, <clears throat> but there is a statement. You're going to become a Roman Catholic if you read Thomas Aquinas. I've never said that. The concern I have expressed is that when you invest in Aquinas, not in the early church fathers, again, I teach church history. We're doing, we are going to be reading the epistle of Diognetus. We're going to be reading from Cyprian's epistle to the Christians in the mines. I, I, we do church history on this program all the stinking time. Anybody who would say that I'm against reading the early church fathers is just not functioning. Just not functioning. You're, you're disconnected from reality. I, I don't even know what to say. It's just sort of like, well, it's the same thing as Neosocinian. Right. Okay. Yeah. And Joe Biden's a brilliant man. Um, <clears throat> same level of insanity. Uh <clears throat> There's, there's, no, there's no connection here. 
what I have said is if you invest in Thomas Aquinas, the title of the greatest Christian theologian ever, and then you start playing games with Sola Scriptura and literally mocking the, the term, using it as a mocking end of a joke. Oh, but Sola Scriptura type of a situation. Um, that's when you're going to have problems because if you're a, a professor and a teacher and you teach your students, and you then demonstrate a disrespect for Sola Scriptura, um, there you go. I'm not sure why Element is now making noises in, uh, I know how to get rid of that though and quit. <laughs> okay. Um, if, if you start doing those things, then your students will follow the natural path and they'll read the rest of Aquinas and they'll go, wow, if he was so brilliant in that area, maybe he's brilliant in this area too. And I just wonder how many of these folks are prepared to deal with Aquinas's views in sacramentology, ecclesiology, soteriology, and all the related fields. Um, don't know, but don't read Aquinas. I've never told anyone not to read Aquinas, not once. But I have sought to communicate to people the context in which Aquinas is, is, is speaking. And the um, devolution of Christian epistemology that has taken place in regards to the sufficiency of scripture at that time in church history, and that he was very much part of. Um, but that's obviously way too complicated to just sort of straw man it. So it's just, you just throw it out there. And so we continue on. Most, most of our listeners um, and people that, that know you and follow you are probably dialed in, you know, somewhat to uh, what's, what's on my mind and some of the things that you've been talking about. And that is the sort of the, the encouragement from some like you to understand what a lot of people call reformed Catholicity uh, to embrace, you know, uh, the, the, the church and, and the history and the heritage that has resulted in reformed thought and ultimately reformed Baptist thought involves hermeneutics and everything. So we're, we're hearing that. On the other hand, we're hearing people who are sound. Okay. Now, that's the one. The one hand is reformed Catholicity and the historical threads that, that formed our, our background understanding and that's what you all are about. That's that's those are the good guys. Those are the smart guys. But then who are sounding alarm bells and saying like there there is there are people who ten years ago weren't saying these things and now they're saying these things about reading Thomas Aquinas. We need to be concerned. Um, can you just maybe paint a, a simple picture for our people? Now, who has said? But 10 years ago, we weren't talking about this. Oh, that would be me, because we weren't. Because we weren't. Joe, did we, did we, did any of us in New Zealand, in all the things we talked about, ever, ever have to bring up Thomas's metaphysics to explain to someone in the audience an answer to a question, anything that they... they 
Even once. Did it ever, ever happen? No, it didn't. You know that. I know that. We all know that. And so if this were to be fairly laid out, then the issue is this reformed Catholicity and this promotion of the great tradition and this idea of this simplistic bifurcation of either pre-modern or modern um, exegetical practice, hermeneutics, so on and so forth. Uh, these would be the issues that we'd be talking about. Not, well, one side is just, just trying to fully understand, you know, and, and the other side is just fearful and, and really, seriously, um, again, no, no meaningful connection to what's really going on um, in the world today. What this back and forth, though there isn't a lot of direct interaction, <laughs> it seems to me, but what this back and forth is all about, like what this back, there's not a lot of direct interaction. Well, Joe, you are providing us with the perfect example of what you just said. Because if you had taken the time to listen accurately and carefully to the dividing line, then you could actually present accurate representations of what our concerns really are. But when you listen to the webcasts, who's quoting the other side? I mean, I actually got the feeling that Steve Meister was a little surprised when you used my name because they've attempted to avoid doing that. Because once you do that, then you got to answer direct questions, you know, or it becomes real obvious that you're, you know, we're talking about him, but we won't actually deal with what he's saying. And people want to ask the honest question, why? Why is that? Um, and so who's, who's quoting the other side? I'm playing you. I've played Steve Meister before. I've played Richard Parcellus before. I've played... James Dolezal before, I've, I, I've Carter, uh, Barrett, quote from the books, quote from talks, quote from tweets, quote, we quote, we interact. The other side doesn't. And so I could sit here right now and go through text after text after text that I've gone, hey, how about this? How do you guys respond to this? What's the issue here? And it's like, it's either silence or you get some, it's like they trot some of these younger guys out to see what will happen when they will, you know, one guy did this whole response and it was all based on asserting that I believe X, Y, and Z. When I specifically said, I don't believe X, Y, and Z, but he must because he doesn't believe it the way we do. Therefore, and then runs off, you know, for the next 45 minutes. I'm not even going to waste my time because it is a waste of time. Um, that's the only type of thing we get. So it really sounded to me like you were saying there's no meaningful interaction, which means you're not listening. You've taken a side, but you're not listening. And that's disappointing, but that's that's how it goes. Yeah, I think it's impossible to discuss this without really just beginning with some of the shifts that happened in the late 18th, 19th centuries and how we approach the Bible, 
how the Bible was moved from uh, serious theology and, and hermeneutics were moved from the church into the academy. And a lot of the shifts that came out of the Enlightenment, uh, as well as the movements that impacted particularly Baptist churches and really all American churches in the 19th century. Um, you had the Campbellite movement that was no creed but the Bible. Campbellite movement has something to do with what re-reformed Baptists are talking about with each other? We're both we're both quoting from the first chapter of London Convention and, and the Campbellites have something to do with this? Really uh, private interpretation trumps what anyone had ever said or thought about scripture. Uh, you have even, you see, I think still today, uh, the impact of the landmark movement and, and the denial of the universal church uh, still impacting us. You have the impacting who? It ain't impacting me. I mean, I have to take time when teaching church history to debunk landmarkism. So I guess it impacts me in that way because it takes time to do that. But that's not what he's saying. Who are these people that are, that are literally being influenced by landmarkism? Where have, read, <laughs> read any of the books I've written where I've gone into church history and, and landmarkism? Really? Wow. Bibleism and the uh, experiential, maybe even mystical emphasis on the, the Christian faith, excluding um, the objective faith that we confess. And so you have all of these mixing together that have become intuitive, have become the default presuppositions unexamined by, by probably the majority of American Christians. Um, and so, so this, this mishmash of stuff has become unquestioned presuppositions and they're the ones that have recognized it and are freeing us from that. Is, is that literally what's being said? We're really out of step with the stream of church history and how Christians approach the Bible and how it's in a stream of history of a church that Christ is building. And so you've had generations now of pastors and uh, good brothers, uh, well-intended, who've been reading and thinking with these presuppositions unexamined um, and ministering that way. And in recent years, recent decades, with, with good historical study, a better understanding of our confessional standards. We haven't done good historical study before the past few years. I mean, no, no one no one did anything with history until Richard Muller. Nobody. Absolutely shocked. Nah. Nah. nah nobody. Just. We have a good call to, hey, we're, we're the anomaly in church history here, and we need to come back to how Christians have understood the relationship of Scripture and the church um, since since the days of the apostles. We need to come back to how Christians have understood the Scriptures in the church since the days of the apostles, as if there is one view. Really? Really? I... I so much of the most meaningful study of church history, especially especially as you deal with the period from Constantine through, um, well, Constantine onwards. There's a particular period of, of development that's extremely important. But 
there's all sorts of different understandings. The, the, the understanding of, of, of the late fourth century is not the understanding of the early second. There is no one understanding. That's just naive on a level that's just astonishing. I, I mean, I don't even I don't even know how to interact with that. Sounds good, but <laughs> I don't know how anybody who reads church history uh, can actually come to that particular conclusion. And then there was a bunch of discussion about stuff that really didn't have anything to do with um, the subject uh, specifically. Um, but we we press on. I don't know. A gr- I know some great theologians. I don't know any great theologian that I really admire who is arrogant. All the great theologians that I know are humble people who really do like look back. They look back to our tradition. And so it seems like, you know, that kind of gets at what you're talking about here, that there is this individualistic, isolated, I'm speaking in generalities here, but there is an individualistic, isolated, maybe evangelical or modern evangelical or fundamentalistic approach to understanding the Bible and theology uh, that has cut some of the ties to the church that has gone before it and is suspicious of tradition. Has absolutely positive nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with this conversation whatsoever. The idea that those of us who are resisting the imposition of a childish, childishly simplistic pre-modern, post-modern hermeneutical discussion because it's foolish. It's ridiculous. It's so easily refuted. The idea that we um, are arrogant, that we don't look back in church history. Joe, why don't you come down to uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary in a few weeks. I'll be teaching early church history. You want to, you want to see if, if what you're saying about us is true, that we're just going to, I'm not sure what we're going to do in early church history because we can't read any of the early church fathers and uh, we can only execute scripture like Schleiermacher and Boltmann. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to do for those days. No, I know exactly what we're going to be doing for those days. We are going to be cramming way too much into way too short a period of time. And despite how hard it's going to be, I'm still going to make sure we spend time digging in to the epistle to Diognetus and digging into Clement and, and talking about Tertullian's comments on baptism. And yeah, we're going to do church history because we do church history. That's, that's not even a part of this. It is a complete canard, a complete canard to present this as, well, we're the church history side, and they're the, <laughs> they're the old Baptists that just, you know, they don't look back on, uh, on their tradition, whatever you want to call that. I just can't. I, since 1990, I, I remember students in my first church history class in 1990 in tears as I discussed with them the divisions that took place in the Reformation between the Radical Reformation and the 
various forms, that radical reformation and the magisterial reformation. <clears throat> Tell you what, Joe, if you don't want to listen <clears throat> to this program, why don't you go and listen to the two episodes I did on Sheologians, my daughter's very popular webcast about Munster. See if we don't do church history. I bet you don't know a tenth about Munster of what you'd learn in that, in those those two episodes. Do it. See if you're, you know, I, I think you have a responsibility to accurately represent the other side. And you ain't accurately representing the other side. And that's not the guy that I met in New Zealand. So I don't I don't get it, but a few more important ones here. Well, oh well, there are actually a lot of them. Oh, sorry. I was looking at the clock going, I might get done. And <clears throat> no. Um, you know, we could go through all those that that's uh, summarized in the Bible, the whole counsel of God or the faith or the good deposit. Um, Paul does not tell Timothy to give the guys he's training Bibles and some grammatical principles and see what they come up with. Okay, that is a glowing straw man. Who says that? Well, the Campbellites. I'm not a Campbellite. The Campbellites are not a part of this discussion. So why even bring it up? No one says that. No one says that. And I and many others, every time that kind of straw man, that misrepresentation is thrown out there, we go, tell us who's doing that. And they never can because we don't. But listen to what that means. Let me, let me play, that, play that again and, and, and follow the, the idea here. Um, you know, we could go through all those that that's uh, summarized in the Bible, the whole counsel of God or the faith or the good deposit. Um, Paul does not tell Timothy to give the guys he's training Bibles and some grammatical principles and see what they come up with theologically. He tells them to pass on what you've heard from me, uh, that they would be able to teach others also. Um, and that, that apostolic succession of doctrine, not office, uh, that apostolic succession is to be carried through the church. Um, and we're to have regard for how God in his spirit has done that very thing and has preserved the uh, fundamental truths of, of our faith. Now, this really then came to the fore in the Reformation. Okay, so when I hear all these things, when I hear this idea of, well, you know, and, and that's, that's how this has been passed on. It's, it's not, they're not given the Bible. What did Paul say to Timothy? How, how is the man of God to be thoroughly equipped? It's by that which is the honest us, which were the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation, right? That's the same apostle. That's, that's what he taught. And I just hear where this language is coming from and where it has gone over and over and over again in the history of the church since the Reformation. This is not the first time that there has been this kind of movement. It's, it's, it's not a new thing. So we, we press forward. But what was not being debated, uh, contrary to some caricatures today, was whether or not we have tradition. What caricatures? Name them. Name your citations. Who's saying that there was no tradition? And who is saying that all tradition is subject to examination by scripture? 
Now he's going to say that he's going to, Oh, Oh yeah, sure. It's always, but how does that work when the tradition becomes a constitutional part of the interpretation of the text? If there is an apostolic tradition that exists outside the text that is necessary to accurately understand the text, the text cannot be the ultimate authority. And once you open that door, church history says the next generation will run through it with a whole lot more than you ever thought they could carry in their hands. It will. It's happened over and over again. What was being debated is whether tradition is a fallible but necessary uh, understanding of, of scripture and where to have regard, especially where there's been great consensus in church history, like the creeds and significant teachers and writers, or whether tradition is a second source of revelation that is given and interpreted by the church. That's the Roman Catholic view. Or much more the case during the Reformation, that tradition is the lens that gives you the proper interpretation. That's what Luther got hit with. Eck hit him with that early on, and he had to deal with it his entire life, and Calvin did the same thing, and Zwingli did the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. The, the question always is, when we talk about creeds, in, in our context right now, what we're being told is, well, look, there are some things that are absolutely non-negotiable. Yeah, why? Because they're in creeds or because they're so plain in Scripture? And if it becomes because they're so plain in the creeds, then we are left, you know, I, I, made, I made brief mention of this in the last program, and I haven't had time to, and it won't for a while, to expand upon it. But again, Anybody who reads deeply in church history knows that every council, Nicaea as well, though probably to the most minimum element, um, but I, I mentioned last time, Chalcedon. How comfortable are you with the amount of politics involved in the development of the creeds of Council Chalcedon? Do you know who the, do you know who the various groups were? Most people know a little something about Nicaea, you know, the homoousians and the homoousians and the heterousians and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But once you get to Chalcedon, most people are like, I, I Antiochian, Alexandrian, Eutyches, and this story. I don't know. And I don't care. There is politics involved. How comfortable are you with it? How comfortable are you with it? And if Chalcedon becomes an integral um, lens, then what is the mechanism that would allow any future generation to analyze the impact that politics had in the creation of that lens and hence the interpretation of the text thereafter? I'm not hearing you guys asking these questions. We are, and we always have. We always have. Now, when I, when I was in seminary, <laughs> when I was in, when when I took that first um, systematic theology, thankfully I had an awesome church history professor, so I already knew from 
church history, some of the context for Calcine, but seminary church history classes are way too short as are seminary Greek classes and Hebrew classes and everything. And so when I interacted with the Chalcedon, I interacted with it with the default of, well, you don't want to question anything from, you know, everybody accepts that, so I need to too. And I then dove into it and provided the biblical defense of, of the statement and, and, and things like that. But that work probably would have been better and more balanced if it had included some background as to the various parties and the political alignments that were a part of that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, and that's what the split was over. The Roman view was novel at that time. It really comes uh, into greater clarity in the 12th, 13th centuries in the medieval period. So two, 300 years is novel, I guess. I mean, there was no one single view of tradition in the early church. I can show you people in the 5th and 6th centuries that have very different views of that very subject. Look at Fulgentius of, of Rus, Excellent, excellent bishop. But you're going to find other people in the same time period that have already moved much farther down the right way of, of, of the exaltation of tradition. Again, these are just church history facts. And we're being told we're the ones that are ignorant of church history. I'm sorry, it doesn't seem to be that way. And so that's really what the debate was over. It was, it was radicals who were arguing for rejecting all of, all of tradition before them, not the reformers. Um, it was always understood that Christ has one body, he has one bride, and we are to understand scripture uh, as Christians have understood it. And so the charge really, our, our controversy with Rome we are to understand scripture as Christians have always understood it. What in the world is that supposed to mean? I mean, the, the, the Reformation, ecclesiology, sacramentology, soteriology, doctrine of baptism, doctrine of the supper, priesthoods. Do I need to go on? You don't think Rome had understandings of the scriptures on those things? They still do to this day. It's not that they they regard tradition and, and we think tradition is bad. Our really controversy with Rome is that they're presumptuous to call themselves the Catholic Church and that they're to import the Romish uh, traditions as uh, divinely. How do you get to define Romish tradition? They can. <sighs> Sitting here thinking about sitting, I think it was the in, in Baldwin, Long Island. Debating Jerry Mattatix, former Protestant, PCA minister, ordained, John Gerstner's favorite student. And it became very clear to me during that debate. And I even said, Jerry, every time I cite an early church father, you dismiss them. You cite an early church father is tradition. Because that's how Rome does it. It's called sola ecclesia. If it substantiates our viewpoint, it's tradition. If it doesn't, it's personal opinion of a father. How you can get around that? Yeah, they said Romish traditions. They rejected them. On what basis? Scripture. Scripture. It's the only basis you can offer. 
because it's the only thing we have from the apostles. Unless you posit this extra tradition that's passed on in some other mechanism. And, and then forming and binding on Christians. That's our controversy. It's not that um, we have the right and prerogative to interpret the Bible however way we want and, and call it Christian. Uh, that, that's not what soul scripture ever meant. However way we want. Who's saying that? Who is saying that? I've interacted with Campbellites. I may be doing a debate later on with the Campbellite. Uh, later on, well, probably next year. Again, depending on travel and whether travel is possible and stuff like that. Um, I've dealt with Campbellites. How do you deal with them? You don't do it on the basis of tradition. You do it on the basis of the incoherence of their exegesis. You've got to go to the agreed upon authority. They're not going to listen to what your confessional traditions are or anything else. So who gets to define it? Rome, Rome's going to go, what do you mean Romish tradition? This is apostolic. Okay, now what do you do? Hero? <laughs> it would really help. It really would help, but I'm not suggesting you do it. It would really help if the other side would spend some time actually dealing with believing Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox apologists. It would help a lot. It really would. Um, tradition is, is good. Tradition's unavoidable. Uh, we all have it. Things are passed down to us. Um, and, of course, they're all to be submitted to and evaluated according to Scripture. Um, that's what we've been saying. It really shouldn't be, as you mentioned, it shouldn't be a, this novel thing to us. It should be taken for granted. should be taken for granted that we test all traditions by Scripture. And that means you can't make the tradition an integral element of your interpretation of Scripture or that becomes a vicious circle, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. I'm trying to be brief here. Going back to our forebears, the, the originators of our particular stream, uh, there was, in their minds, there was no, this was not what we were fighting over, and we were not divorcing ourselves from the Catholic small seed tradition. And I still think that's a good Catholicity, um, and it's not inconsistent to be Baptist and Catholic. In, Catholic small seed tradition regarding what? Um, bishops, cardinals, um, the very form of worship, baptism, supper. That sense in terms of the universal church. By the way, I just sped it up to 1.2 so we can get done a little bit faster. And that's what we mean. That's what we're calling Christians to understand. We've neglected these things for a long time for various reasons. I think in our churches, uh, um, many pastors are just untrained and ignorant of what we confess according to scripture here, and don't understand that our controversies with Rome on the doctrine of salvation, and even our, our um, controversies as Baptists and our distinctives as Baptists as it relates to the church, we see these as continuous with and consistent with Catholic small seed Christianity. In fact, that's why we hold these positions. Define then what that means in church history. Who are you pointing to? I mean, we, we can go back to second century and we can find believers' baptism, no question, and it it's, it, it continues to be the norm for uh, at least two centuries after that too. But then you get the rise of infant baptism and you had the whole issue of delayed baptism and um, won't go into all that right now. But specifics specifics where where does it fit 
And our charge against Rome is that you actually forget what you confess about God in Christ when you get to your doctrine of salvation and sacramentalism, that you're actually rejecting fundamental truths about the being of God and the person of Christ and his work. Um, so we're... Hmm. Well, I would agree with that. And that would be the same with Thomas Aquinas, right? I mean, he just literally, Steve Meister just literally made the connection between soteriology and theology proper. And so that means that Aquinas had serious incoherences there, right? Which we're saying? I think Christians in the standing that we have these controversies and these divides and the corruptions of Christianity have not studied or been just exposed to where our specific controversies are, where we differ, and that it's not on those things that Christians have been confessing for, for centuries. Which I am assuming he's referring to theology proper and to the specifics of divine simplicity or several operations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, we just mean that we are seeing ourselves as reforming the Church of Christ, not starting a revolution and making another church or being a schism from it, and that we have things to learn from the brothers and sisters that preceded us and that we're building, we trust, on their shoulders and what they've seen in God's Word and reforming it, certainly revising it, correcting it according to Scripture, um, but not throwing it out wholesale and starting over again with, you know, just us in the Bible in a, in a, in a room as it were isolated. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. Okay, again, so the Jehovah's Witnesses are a part of this conversation now? No one's saying that you ignore church history. No one's even, I mean, this is the straw man, constant straw man misrepresentation of the other side. But again, I want to push back on, okay, you say that we learn from what these people before us believed, but how does that work then when you then say we can correct what they said by scripture? Because if we have to take into consideration their interpretation of a passage as part of this tradition provided by the Holy Spirit so we can have a clear understanding of what Scripture says, how could Scripture ever correct an error that they might make? How many people in church history, how many people today? I've told the story a thousand times of the, the, the guy that came to me, and he, he was going to be preaching soon at a super large church. He had read a fairly well-known commentator, said something about what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, what do you, th I've never heard anybody say this. Take a look at it for me. I did. It didn't hold water. It was just some personal thing that this guy came up with. And it wasn't valid. He still preached it, but it wasn't valid. Well, what if that was Augustine? You think that might have a, a, long-term impact upon people afterwards as to how they interpret that passage? Because you've always got the great authority of Augustine. How does scripture maintain its supremacy in that situation? It's not easy. It's not simple. But I don't see people really delving into actually how to handle that. And I think, you know, I, Oops, sorry, we're almost, almost there. Christians are still wrestling with that and unaware of uh, that we can't hold, we're not going to hold orthodox conclusions um, in our confession while we're using interpretive methods that are antithetical to it. And that's really a lot of the divide and debate that we're uh, confronting. The divide and the debate that we are confronting. So that's, this is what we're talking about now, is that one side holds to a hermeneutic that can substantiate the confession, the other side does not. Baloney. Baloney. 
that is just simply a blatant falsehood. It may be repeated over and over again, but it's a blatant falsehood. You literally telling me that by following medieval forms of exegesis, you're going to substantiate the assertions of London Baptist Confession of Faith on justification by faith? No, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Oh, but on uh, theology, that's all you want to talk about, huh? There's more to the confession. Well, you got to start there. So you're going to tell me that it takes medieval exegesis to establish theology proper. You can't get that from just scripture. I mean, how old-fashioned is that? Because you have hermeneutics that really come out of the Enlightenment, hermeneutics come out of the Academy, that come out from uh, Harnack and Schleiermacher and these guys who were dead set on a project to undermine Christian orthodoxy. Okay, someone's been reading way too much Craig Carter. Because none of us on our side are promoting Schleiermacher and Boltmann. None of us. We're not doing it. Show me where we're doing it. You can't, because we don't. Another straw man. I need, I haven't found one yet. I'm not going to light up Ultraman. Sorry, Chris, I, I, I love you too much to light up Ultraman, but he probably would be flammable. <laughs> I need, I really, really need a, 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 a portable straw man because, wow, the internet is now full of them being produced by Reformed Baptists and to detach it from uh, the Christian faith, reinventing a new Christianity, really. Um, we, Even though we reject their conclusions as, as heterodox, we're still stuck with their methods. Uh, Who? Why? Where? Document it. Show it. Show where anything that I have said in response to you guys where I've opened up the scriptures, I was dependent upon Schleiermacher or Boltman. You can't do it, and you know it. You know it. Why say these things? I don't understand it. It's just, oh, yeah. And even the invention of, uh, sometimes I'll use, you know, as an illustration, Schleiermacher's invention of historical theology. Historical theology is a category, is a modern that is ironically used to isolate us from history. It used to be just theology. Yeah. <laughs> Those are guys we interacted with. This was a conversation we were having with Christians who came before it. Now we have it sequestered in this category of, yeah, if you can get around to it, if you have time, maybe if you want to take an elective, you can think about what other Christians thought about the Bible, but mainly it's about what's happened, you know, recently. And so when I read uh, Historical Doctrine by, um, uh, names escaping me, but standard work. So that was dependent on Schleiermacher? I, I, I don't even, again, in terms of Reformed Catholicity, we're trying to bring that wall down. We're trying to re-engage um, the Church Catholic, the Church Universal down through the ages. And that doesn't mean imbibing everything that it comes down from the past, right. um, it, correcting everything according to Scripture, uh, but that we're correcting everything according to Scripture. Yeah, we all believe that. We all believe that. Correcting everything according to Scripture, which means those traditions cannot become the lens by which we read scripture, right? Or then it can't be corrected, right? So the only hermeneutical process that would allow you to correct what has come down to you in tradition is to start with what the apostles intended to communicate to their audience, recognize that all scripture is inspired, and so therefore you have the 
consistency of each author, the consistency of each, each book, the consistency of each testament. That's how we used to do theology, and we got along great doing it. And then now we're not. Mm-hmm. Engaged with the church um, down through the ages and benefiting and deepening and not just throwing it out um, because it's old, antiquated, or we don't get it on immediately, intuitively when we read language that swarms us. Nobody doing that either, but it's supposed to sound good. Because I know that there are people, like most recently, uh, James White seems to be a guy that's pretty vocal against the the encouragement that some Baptist seminaries have given for their students to read Thomas Aquinas. Which, so there's, finally, and I, again, I, I really think Steve was like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. So, Joe, where have I, where have I said you shouldn't read Thomas Aquinas? Because I, I'm reading Thomas Aquinas on the program all the time these days, right? Interacting with stuff that he said, you know, I started on, the, I forgot to mention the John 13 thing where he had just, he didn't catch the connection because he wasn't using the original languages and, and stuff like that. We're talking about Thomas Aquinas. Have you listened to what we're saying? What we're saying is when you have Baptists who put out uh, scholarships and to get the scholarship, you have to write a paper and the person who gets scholarship is the person whose paper sounds the most like Thomas Aquinas, follows his methodology, the old scholasticism. Read what Calvin thought about the scholastics or Luther thought about the scholastics. Um, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about reading him. We're talking about exalting him as if he was the final step, the the pinnacle in the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Doesn't that bother you, Joe? Craig Carter said that. He said that in his own Twitter feed. And all these guys are promoting the same books. Don't you think that would be, don't you think that's the reason to go, hmm, that's different. It's not what we used to do. And it doesn't seem consistent with what we actually believe. Right? It shouldn't be controversial at all. We were reading the church fathers, both in Bible college and in seminary. Like that, you do read that stuff, right? So that's a, that's a part of it. You think I tell people not to read the other church fathers, Joe? You know better. If you've listened to anything I've said, you know better. And if you haven't listened to anything I've said, then why are you talking about me? It's one of the two. It's one of the two. Yeah, but like, why? And, and, and I mean, I'm hoping we can actually be charitable. Why? Why is there so much triggering when it comes to Thomas Aquinas? But then maybe there's there's a greater pass given to Augustine, right? Or uh, or one of the one of the creeds. Or, or is there? Because it seems like there, I'm, I'm confused. I'm, I'm really confused at the idea. Like You're confused because you haven't been listening. You're listening to one side, misrepresent the other side, and just believing whatever you're told. That will lead to confusion. That will lead to confusion. We have been consistently critical of both Thomas Aquinas and Augusta. I started telling the story in the 90s, Joe that one of the greatest lessons we can learn from Augustine 
is the contradictions in his own theology that came about because of the conflicts he was involved with. First, the Donatist controversy, and then the Pelagian controversy. How many times have I quoted Warfield? The Reformation, inwardly considered, is nothing more than the victory of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the church. Been doing this for decades. So why the confusion? Because you're not listening to the side you're criticizing. Why? I didn't do that to you. I saw you being criticized for being woke or all the rest of this stuff. I didn't jump on. I didn't start having people on my program to talk about you without actually mentioning your name. So why do that to me? Well, what, what is this? I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand the motivation. Really don't. Can't read Thomas Aquinas because if you accept one part of his works, you have to accept all of it. That's that's the impression that I'm getting. The impression that you're getting. So it sounds like what you're saying is, well, if if Aquinas was wrong about one thing, he's wrong about everything. Have I ever said that? When when Aquinas argues for monotheism, I'm saying, well, but because he was wrong about baptism, that means he's wrong about this too. Never said it. Never got close to saying it. Now, maybe there's some people in your circles that have no integrity or honesty that just misrepresent me to you. That's a possibility. But it's your responsibility on your own program to be accurate in what you're saying, right? I've never said any of those things. I have said that Thomas himself would not like the idea of being chopped up into pieces, to where, well, what Thomas said about theology proper, <clears throat> that's, that's the good stuff. And then what he says about the Lord's Supper, <laughs> especially that would have freaked him out. That would, I'm not sure freaked him out is an appropriate historical description to be used, but uh, he would have rejected that and would have found it highly offensive. Um. I have never said to anybody, it's either take or to leave it. Either someone's 100% right or they're 100% wrong. That's just so absurd. I don't even know how to respond to it. I don't know how to respond to it. And that's just never, I mean, goodness sakes, I haven't operated that way. I don't know any church that's operated that way historically. I mean, that's because not even everybody that put together the, the Second London agreed on everything. Like they, they put down the things that they did agree on here. And it's like, you don't, mm-hmm. so I mean, can you unpack this? Like what, what is going on? Why is there such a triggering response in some to Thomas Aquinas right now? Yeah, so I'm the sum. And it's allegedly a triggering response when the reality is we have been reading from Thomas and looking at his, his commentaries and doing all the rest of this kind of stuff and putting him in his own context and noting that his theology is fundamentally foundational to um, the Council of Trent and Roman Catholicism. That's true. That's just a, some of us can observe that and go, that's true. It's the way it is without going. And that means that he was wrong about divine simplicity. I've never made that argument. Never made that argument. Well, I think some of it is just ad hominem, um, and 
genetic fallacy that you know throwing out uh, uh, you know everything someone got something wrong as you, as you as you point out that that's an untenable position um, none of us operate that way we would live yep, none of us do including me so Steve stop it it's not what's going on why give an answer that is so obviously untrue I don't know maybe by ourselves isolated right. and and maybe some are are thinking that way they 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 operate in their their world, they're ignorant, and they operate in Christianity as a sect and their own gurus, for lack of a better word, in their own little tribe. Um, yeah. What does that have to do with anybody? Is, is, is that actually being applied to me? If so, it's pure slander, and it's it's absurd. And I I, I just I I can't conceive how anybody could hear that and go, "What are you What are you talking about? Why Why are these people doing this? There's just so much evidence, published evidence for decades." Showing that this that's not even close to true. So why bring it up? These are questions that need to be answered. We we can't do that consistently. And you're right that the the issues if you if you toss out Aquinas on the doctrine of God and the issues that are particularly being pointed to, um, you're going to have to also pull out Anselm, Augustine. You're going to have to unmove uh, Nicaea, and eventually you're just throwing out everybody. Um, nobody's arguing for a wholesale embracing of tradition, as it were, of everything everyone said, or that if somebody said something helpful on certain um, areas of theology or doctrine, that you're now obligated to embrace everything they said or nothing. Um, and we're not consistent with that, like you said, at all. And as you mentioned, Baptists have disagreed with each other. That's painfully obvious to, to all of us. Um, and that's true in every tradition. Um, and the, the whole point of confessions were to actually allow for that liberty um, and for us to have different interpretive takes on passages of scripture while setting out the boundaries and the, the, the core truths that Christians have agreed on down through the ages. So I, I don't know that I can really locate or understand why the animosity about this, uh, what my... Now remember, this is a false question being answered falsely. Both of you know that. Uh, it was a false question because it's not representative of what I've said or done, and now it's being answered as if it was a valid question, which makes that false as well. Um, but why is this type of thing happening among true foreign Baptists? Locate or understand why the animosity. 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 This, uh, what my theory is just that we've been teaching, certain prominent teachers and pastors have been teaching what is contrary to the creedal confessional consensus of uh, the faith. And that is Steve Meister from Sacramento saying about that about me. Okay, so just want everybody needs to understand this side is willing to make this kind of accusation. They now Joe mentioned the name. He's not. He doesn't. I'm sorry, Steve. You should have at least had the temerity, have the guts. If you're gonna if you're gonna make the accusation, then make it straightforward. Okay. I'm saying right now that you all are not dealing with our objections to your positions and you all are having meetings in back rooms at seminaries and ministries to try to deal with this stuff rather than doing this the way it should be done. And that is straightforward. Let's get, let's get a, a Bible open. Let's, let's do this in a meaningful fashion. Okay. But I'm not calling you a heretic. You're calling me that. That's right there. You just said it. You know, once it's said on the internet, it's there. And so 
once again, in response to all the people who said, oh, you should go to California and sit in the room. No, we're going to say it one last time. If you all really believe this, then there needs to be the organization of a conference with papers, presentations, and at least one major debate that will be accurately represented and not filled with straw man misrepresentation. I don't think you all want that. I'll just be honest with you. Because I, when, I don't remember what it was. I think someone looked it up. When I first suggested it, I think it was January. And this is August. I said, this is the only way to really deal with this. Is to lay it out there. Have papers presented. Have rebuttals. Cross-examination. And debate the issue. But have it fair and square. Not one person against 10, but five against five. Or maybe five on one side, five on the other side, five in the middle who don't have a clue what's going on. <laughs> that might be the best way to do it. And hopefully since Reformed Baptist, you don't end up having the decision made in the back lot with fists. Uh, hopefully we could avoid that. That does happen a lot in Baptist history. But that's what needs to happen. You're making the accusations. You're laying them out there. Almost done. To their own, some guys are uh, to be Reformed Baptists that are teaching things that are inconsistent with it. Purported. Purported. Okay? So they are saying they're not actually Reformed Baptists. Because we define confessionalism. Our understanding defines confession. They're not actually Reformed Baptists. That's what is being said. That is what is being said confession and it can't be reconciled with it and um when you point that out to them they have a decision to make they can humble themselves and be corrected or they can you know call you a you know incipient papist or you're gonna lead everybody to rome or all these kind of crazy things i mean so who's he talking about he's talking about me when i spoke about incipient papists i was talking about the mockery of solo scriptura that was going on by steve meister himself with Richard Brussels. The documentation's right there. It happened over and over again. Oh, but Sola Scriptura, bro. You don't mock Sola Scriptura if you believe Sola Scriptura. If you've seen how many people's lives have been destroyed when they abandon Sola Scriptura, you're not going to mock it. And that's what they were doing. And it's a crazy, that's crazy. Steve, if you're going to talk about me, I will use your name. You use mine, okay? What, can, you be that, can you be that honest with me? If you're going to accuse me of this stuff, use my name. Be open about it. Because, see, once, once you're open about your accusations, then we can put that out in the light and demonstrate that it is a complete falsehood. And then you have to try to defend it. But when you won't use names, then it's, oh, well, well yeah, we're just, I'm just speaking generally. You know, we just uh, just have a little fun here type thing. No, be specific. Be specific. Almost done. It's kind of insults that get thrown around, particularly online, or just they're, they have no basis in reality. I want to take seriously confession that deliberately rejects Rome and its errors, refers to the Pope as that Antichrist. I, I'm not in danger of swimming the tide at all. Right. And Aquinas and anyone else is only helpful insofar as they're consistent with that, in, in my view. Um, and so... I don't, I think it's, it's really just a, 
honestly a rhetorical strategy. It's it's a sign of a lack of teachability and humility. Um, and we certainly want to pray for a better interaction and discourse uh, from our brothers. So there is clear statement from Steve Meister from Sacramento. Uh, we are unwilling to be taught. We're not humble. Uh, we engage in ad hominem. Um, and we're the ones sitting over here playing their statements, exposing them to the light, refuting them, and demonstrating that so far, uh, it seems that the, the biggest thing that these guys have learned from Thomas Aquinas is how to build, burn a straw man. And that generally wasn't what Thomas Aquinas did. I mean, if you're going to give Aquinas credit for anything, when he would represent the other side, he'd represent it accurately. Sometimes to his own hurt. So they haven't learned that from him. We have. We have. So uh, when you have, when I'm hearing from people saying, I heard you believe this, or I heard you believe that, and it's not even close, it's not even connected, then I know that there is a, uh, there's a, there's a movement going on. Uh the Reformed Baptist cancel culture. And it's it's happening. Is is that good for our movement? No, it's not. No, it is not. It's very bad. Uh, can we get through it? Well, I hope so. But the only, only way that's going to happen is uh, there needs to be some public debates. There needs to be uh, papers written with responses given, interaction, cross-examination, I think you gentlemen need to sit down and we'll we'll have plenty of places to write and we'll go, okay, let's look at some passages of scripture. You put your exegesis up here. I'll put my exegesis up there. You tell me how that's modern and yours is yours is pre-modern and therefore is somehow more faithfully apostolic. And I just think there's a bunch of you, you know that's not ever going to happen because it can't happen. It sounds great on paper. You can get lots of books published, and that's what's happening. But when it gets specific, let's talk about this text. Let's dig down on this. Not going to happen. But we'll keep trying. We'll lay it out there, and we will turn the light on. And when you all want to engage in misrepresentation, we're going to expose it. We're going to. We need to. It's, it's a waste of time. Unless we remain hopeful that somebody's going to go. Here's, here's my gut feeling. When the culture collapses, none of this is going to. The specifics of the in-depth theological assertions are going to mean nothing. Whether we stood firm on the ultimate authority of scripture will mean everything. When the regime tells you that you need to sign a document that um, celebrates transgenderism, the foundation of your rejection of that, which will result in your imprisonment or maybe your execution, the foundation of your rejection of that, what's it going to be? Is it going to be the great tradition? Or is it going to be the very speech of God himself in Scripture? So it does matter. 
but it does matter. It's important. Wow. For a road trip dividing line, that was a long one. Rich, you still awake back there? I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that maybe possibly unconsciousness has... Uh... Yep, still here. Yep, still there. <laughs> and you get to take all the phone calls from this, right? Um, right? Actually, the phone does not ring from these fellows. Oh. oh. You know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. No calls? Yes. Not yet. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. I got you. I hear you. I hear you. All right. Well, listen to the program again. If you're in the Colorado area, well, Denver area, Denver, Boulder, Colorado Springs, whatever, uh, Jason Lyle and I will be getting together starting tomorrow night and talking about secularism and all that neat, wonderful, fun stuff and how to respond to it. And what, what's the uh, name of the church? What's, what's the name of the church? Redemption Hills Church. Redemption Hills Church. And uh, I've spoken there a number of times before. So uh, just look up Redemption Hills Church. The schedule is there on the website and uh, how, you know, how to get there and all the rest of that fun stuff. And starting tomorrow evening, I don't have the website up in front of me right now or I give you a specific time, but Redemption Hills Church, you can get all that stuff for yourself. So, all right. Thanks for watching the program today. And uh, let's see, today is Thursday. So, yeah, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. God bless.